before he meets Jesus and then you have the period of time afterwards when he's a missionary where he's called Paul. But if you look at Saul's life before he met Jesus, Saul was God's enemy. He was God's enemy even though Saul was very religious. Now Saul does not use that word enemy of himself, I don't think, but he sure conveys the idea when he talks about his own life and what was going on with him. Saul was a member of a group within uh, the Jewish faith called the Pharisees. There were a few different groups. There were the Pharisees, probably the largest group. There were the Sadducees. There were the Essenes. And the Pharisees, had, the group, had started a few hundred years before the time of Saul. And it had a, it had a good purpose when it started. The Pharisees began as a group that were responding to the spiritual laxness of the people of Israel. If you were here last week or if you listened to the sermon from last week, I was giving you a short Old Testament history and one that you weren't going to get tested on. But one of the things that you see, one of the patterns, is that some of the time the people of Israel listened to God, the rest of the time they turned away. And they would turn away so fast and so often. It happened again and again. And in about 600 B.C., God is dealing with the people of Israel that remain, and he sends them into exile. Now, that doesn't really mean anything to us. But imagine this. A foreign army comes in and invades our country and wins. And you and I are told, you pack your stuff, what only you can carry on your back, and you march, you walk for three months to this new place where you don't know the language, you don't know the people or the culture or anything. And you live there for 70 years. And you know the whole time you're there, you're there because you kept disobeying God again and again and again. And he had told you, warned you, that this was a possible consequence. And then he said, it's not just possible anymore, it's coming. We have the exile. You would imagine, if you had lived through something like that, that you would learn your lesson. That you'd say, you know what? I am going to be sure that I don't keep turning away from God anymore. But they are just like us. And they did. And so, in about 400 B.C., Malachi is the last writing Old Testament prophet. The people have returned from exile. They're back in their own land. They've reestablished their homes. They've rebuilt the temple. Looks like, on the surface, they're worshiping God the way they're supposed to. They're, they're, I mean, they're going to the temple every Sabbath doing all those things they're supposed to do, and yet God says, you've turned away again. The Pharisees respond to that and say, oh, we should, don't you, haven't you people learned yet? We need to be serious about God's word. We need to be serious about following God. And so that's the beginning of the group of the Pharisees. They wanted to be serious about following God. And so they studied God's word. And they memorized it. And they were very careful to try to, to keep the Ten Commandments and the other rules. But what happened over time, they took the Ten Commandments and some of the other laws that God had given Israel and turned them into 614 rules that you are to follow. They became obsessive about keeping those rules. And those rules were primarily something you could see. Somebody could look at you and see are you wearing the right clothes and wearing them the right way? When you have your meals, are you doing the right things? 
these rules were observable. Because if the law is, or the God's word is talking about what's in your heart, that's hard to see. It actually takes time to watch somebody and see what's really motivating them and what's going on. And so the Pharisees had turned to these observable rules and they multiplied them to make sure that they were not breaking the letter of the law at all. But in, in expanding these rules, the Pharisees disconnected themselves from God. And they didn't know it. Because see, God's not all about rules. He does give us rules. We need them to live in society, to live in families. But he's all about relationship. And they'd forgotten that part as they focused on the rules. And the Pharisees were blind to their own blindness. They didn't know that they had turned away from God. But it explains why when Jesus comes and he speaks God's words, the Pharisees don't like it. And I grew up in the church, and I grew up thinking the Pharisees were these bad guys. They're just really dumb, and they just didn't get it. But having learned some of the history, I can see now how it is they ended up the way they did, and that very easily I could be and have been the same way as they were. Well, at Pentecost, the New Testament Christian church has started, and it starts with a bang. In one day... God adds 3,000 people to the church. But if you read Acts, you see the Jewish religious leaders, including the Pharisees, don't like it. They don't like this at all. Okay? They thought, along with Saul, that Christianity was a perversion of the true Jewish religion. What they didn't understand was that the Jewish religion they practiced was itself a perversion because they'd lost God and disconnected it with God. Now think about it when you're speaking with somebody else and they have the audacity to disagree with you. What is our first reaction when we're talking and somebody disagrees? Well, I know I'm right and they're not agreeing so it must be that they're wrong. Well, that's Saul and the Pharisees. They are sure. Saul was sure, he was positive that Jesus was not the Messiah that was supposed to come. He was sure, along with many of the other Jews, that God's Messiah would never, never allow himself to be crucified. First, the Messiah wasn't supposed to die. But second, crucifixion was intentionally shameful, painful. A good Jew would consider anybody who was crucified to have been cursed by God. You know what? They were right about Jesus being on the cross and being cursed, but not because of anything he did. You see, in the minds of the Pharisees and most of the Jews of that day, the Messiah was going to be a conquering hero. Well, Jesus was a conquering hero. He just did it backwards from the way we would do it. He won by losing. He defeated death by dying. And they didn't get it. And so when you read the book of Acts, what you see is that the first group to persecute the Christians were Jews. As you read there, you will see that Saul held the coats of the men who killed Stephen the deacon. 
Saul then continues that by arresting Christians in Jerusalem, having, putting them in jail. Saul made Jerusalem so unsafe for Christians that they fled by the hundreds. They relocated, decided they wanted to live somewhere else. Now last week I, I shared with you Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus is talking to his followers and says, I'm going I'm to give you the Spirit, and when you have the Spirit, you'll have power to be witnesses. He says, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Well, for, that was for them, and it applies to us as well. Our Jerusalem, your Jerusalem, is your immediate circle of family and friends, co-workers, others that you know that are the closest. Judea and Samaria, that's the next group of people that, are, that, that you sometimes get in touch with. The Judea side, that's the people that their culture is like yours. The Samaria are the people that are around you whose culture is different. And Jesus gave them this commission, this job, to go tell, to be his witnesses. Well, it appears, from what we can tell, that... The, the Christian church got fairly comfortable in Jerusalem. There were a few people like Philip and some others that, that went out and were telling others. So it looks like God used Saul in his zeal to get rid of the Christians to actually push them out of Jerusalem and help them do what God had told them to do. And what we do know is that as they went to these other places, they did witness. They did say, I've met God, and God has changed my life for the good. And they shared. Well, if you put up the next slide. You and I are not eyewitnesses of a physical Jesus. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Not there yet. Not there yet. Saul is on his way. He wasn't a, Saul, Saul was an eyewitness of Jesus. We'll get to, to how he was in a minute. Saul was on his way to the city of Damascus. He had just finished cleaning out Jerusalem. He's pretty pleased, I think, probably. Kind of reading between the lines. He's on his way to Damascus to do a repeat, try to get rid of the Christians there. When Jesus interrupts his life, Saul's life, and turns his life upside down and backwards. Saul is on his way to Damascus when Jesus knocks him to the ground with a blast of light. So there he is on the ground wondering what in the world just happened. He cannot see. He's blinded. He's blinding light. And somehow he knows when he hears this voice, it's not somebody around him. It's a voice from heaven. And the voice says, you are persecuting me. Now think about it. If that was you, just got knocked to the ground. You're trying to wonder what's going on. You cannot see. You hear this voice. You know it's from heaven. And it says, you're persecuting me. You think, you have to be thinking, oh, this is not good. Now, you and I, I don't think any of us have actively opposed the Christian church the way that Saul did. But God says that you and I are enemies just like he was. That's his words. It sounds like strong language. And it is, but that's God's words that he chooses to use. You see, people can be God's enemies, even if they go to church, even if they're religious, 
even if they do good things. You and I can be all of those things. But if a person does not acknowledge God as their creator, that God made, it, made us, that he's our king, that means he has the authority to tell us how to live and what he wants us to do. That he's our judge, that he's going to judge us and call us to account. Did we live the way he wanted us and called us to live? And also, do we acknowledge him as our rescuer, that we need to be rescued? If we don't, we're his enemy. So in verse 15, Saul says, Who are you, Lord? Being respectful. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So first, Jesus identifies himself. Saul knows that dead people don't talk. He knows that Jesus had died. There were hundreds and thousands that could confirm it. They saw him on the cross right outside the gates of Jerusalem. He'd heard the rumor, as far as he was concerned, that's all it was, was a rumor that Jesus had risen. And now here Jesus is talking to him. So he recognizes, oh my, what these Christians were saying is true. Because Jesus is talking to me. And then Jesus identifies himself with his church. Saul's been making life miserable for the Christians. Seeing some murdered, some put in jail. Now follow the logic. How, do, how does anybody become a Christian? God comes to us. God begins the relationship. God puts his spirit in us. And so if a person is a Christian and Saul is persecuting that Christian, Saul is persecuting Jesus. Well, in verse 16, Jesus could have, just like that, destroyed Paul. Jesus could have punished him. He would have been right in doing either one of those two things. He would have been just. I mean, that's what Saul deserved. But instead, what we see in verse 16 is that Jesus appoints Saul as a servant and a witness. Now, if you heard last week's sermon, I had two themes. One was God is a missionary God. God comes looking for us. But the other theme was the word unlikely. When you read the account of Jesus' birth, it is so different than the way any of us would have planned it and had it. When you look at what's going on here, I mean, think about what is happening. Saul is an enemy of God. And God chooses to adopt him as his child, which makes him now Jesus' spiritual brother. God chooses an enemy who's helped murder and put Christians in jail, chooses him to be his spokesman. And then God chooses enemies, that's us, to be his witnesses. So unlikely a way of doing things. Well, when Jesus appoints Saul, that word appoint in the Greek has the idea that Jesus had decided to choose Saul a long time ago, way before any of this happened, as in before he was born. The word appoint also relates to the idea of an apostle. Now, that's not a word that you and I use today. It was used back then, and it wasn't just a religious word. You could be an apostle at work. If your boss called you into his office and said, I have a job for you. I need you to go to this place 
and to talk to these people to do this transaction, you were an apostle because you've been commissioned. You were sent. You were given a job to do. And that's what Saul was, was. He had been given a job by Jesus. And Jesus appoints Saul as a servant and a witness. So think about what that word servant means. That means that Jesus is the one who gives Paul, Saul, directions. Tells him what to do. Saul then has to answer to Jesus for what he does or doesn't do. That's what happens when you're a servant. You're given orders, and you follow them, and you're held accountable. Well, it turns out that all Christians are Jesus' servants. We're his brothers and sisters, but we're also his servants because he is King of kings and Lord of lords to us. So think about what that means for, for you and me in our daily life. Our life is not our own to live any way that we want. We, we should be asking every day, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Now, some of the things are pretty obvious in terms of if you're part of a family, living in that family. If you're in school, doing your best in school. If you're at work, doing your best at work. The New Testament tells us we work and live to honor Jesus, not ourselves. So the what, but also the how. And the Bible is loaded, especially the New Testament, with the how we are to live and how we are to relate to people. Just a little plug for tonight's class at 5.30, Biblical Principles class. We're going to be talking about forgiveness and reconciliation, which is something that we end up doing quite often, either on the receiving end or the giving end. We do. Jesus tells us how he wants us to live. And then Jesus calls Saul to be a witness. Now in this case, in Saul's case, he makes him an eyewitness just like the 11 that Jesus chose. Those 11 spent three years with Jesus. They walked along with him. They followed him. They listened to him teach. They saw him heal people. They saw the miracles that he did. They talked with him. They asked questions. He asked them questions for three years. Now, if you look through the Gospels, it didn't really take that well okay, until Jesus put his spirit in them. But they were eyewitnesses. And if you look at what Saul says about his life, here he is in the dirt, in the middle of this blinding light, and Jesus is talking to him and says, you're, you're going to be an eyewitness too. We're talking right now. And oh, by the way, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to talk with you. You're going to have visions of Jesus. And he did. Now, what was he doing? And we think this may have gone on for the better part of 14 years with Saul. What is he doing? He's unlearning. Remember, he was one of the best Pharisees of his day. He was 100% in to the Jewish pharisaical way of life. And what did he find out just like that? Oh, my goodness. Everything that I thought is wrong. And so he has to unlearn and then relook at God's word from God's point of view and see what God was saying. Now we come to the slide. 
You and I are not eyewitnesses of a physical Jesus. But for every person who is a Christian, we are all witnesses of what God has done in our lives and in the lives of people we know. If you remember last week, we talked about being a witness. And what does a witness do on the witness stand? It says, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is what happened to me. No special qualifications, no extra special knowledge. That's what being a witness is. And that's what we're called to do. And then Jesus goes on and says, Okay, Paul, let me share with you my purposes, my plan. I'm going to send you as my servant. Here's what I'm sending you to do. And he says, Saul, I'm sending you to open people's spiritual eyes so that they may, and then he lists four things. First, turn from darkness to light. Second, turn from the power of Satan to God. Third, they can receive forgiveness of sins. And fourth, receive a place which is talking about an inheritance. An inheritance that we have. So let's look at this for just a minute. Turn from darkness to light. Talk about spiritual darkness. And this spiritual darkness can be religious or non-religious. In either case, we end up turning away from God. Now, Satan is the one in his power that, that has, brings this spiritual darkness. And Satan opposes God's good news because Satan hates God. Satan, we find out, tried to overthrow God and he failed. People like you and me, human beings are made in God's image and so Satan hates people. And so how does he go about this spiritual darkness? One, he blinds people's spiritual eyes so that if they hear God's word, hear God's good news, it sounds foolish to them. Satan gets people to make up their own religions. Have you ever wondered why we have so many different religions in the world? Well, as far as Satan is concerned, any other religion is a good replacement, including forms of Christian religion that have twisted God's word. It is a very good alternative to the truth. So he gets people to make up their own religions. He encourages people to set up their own standards. I'm going to live the way I want to live. Satan often gets one group of people to oppress another. They're very busy, one oppressing, the other one being oppressed, and trying to, to live and survive and what is going on. And you see that one all through history, including today. Or the other one, that is certainly a temptation for us where we are, Satan encourages people to be prosperous. Satisfy your life with stuff. It only takes a little more. Do you have the latest cell phone? Do you have the latest tablet? Are you driving the latest car? Do you have a house that's as good as your neighbor's. Find more stuff. Satan's desired result is that whatever method he uses, oppressing people, turning them to another religion, turning them to stuff, whatever it is, he just wants people to reject God's good news because he wants to see people suffer. God's good news, you see in the, in the third and fourth point of what the result is going to be as God uses Saul to open people's spiritual eyes. One, they're going to see that God offers forgiveness of sins, that a God offers an inheritance. 
to people who don't deserve it. That's good news. Then verse 17, Jesus says to, to Saul, I will deliver you from the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, this is so much like when God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet in the Old Testament. Jeremiah was a teenager. And God comes to him and says, Jeremiah, I have chosen you to be my spokesman to my people. And then he says, and I will rescue you. Now imagine you're Saul or Jeremiah. You, you want me to be your spokesman? Oh, wow, God, that is amazing. And then he says, and, and don't worry, I'm going to rescue you. What? What? Whoa, what? No, no, no. What's this rescue stuff? No, no, no. Why? Because there's a part of us, even in the life of every Christian, there's a part of us that focuses on us. And we want a life of leisure, or we want a life of pleasure, or a life of accomplishment, where I can look at my life and say, look at what I've done. We want those kinds of things. And Jesus says, I'm calling you to an adventure. I'm calling you to a whole different life. You can still have, there still be leisure, there will still be pleasure, there may still be some accomplishments. But you'll realize all of that that you give is a gift. He calls us to a different kind of life. And so then Jesus makes Saul a missionary to the Gentiles. If some people say that God is this big frowny God that he never smiles and he never laughs. Well, I know he has a sense of humor because look at what he just did to Saul. Saul, again, remember, he is the top of his class in his day of the Pharisees. One of the things that the Pharisees major on is staying away from Gentiles. You see, in their view of life, it's, it's really simple. There are only two groups of people. There are the Jews, who are God's chosen people, and there's everybody else. And we just call them Gentiles to make it easy. And if any Gentile wants to become a Jew, wonderful. Glad to have him, as long as he's willing to follow all our rules and become just like us. Otherwise, who cares what happens to them? And Jesus chooses Saul to be a missionary to the Gentiles. Remember, God is a missionary God. He goes after people. He calls us to go after people, to love them, to care for them, to do good to them. And God chooses Saul and ends up sending him all over the Roman Empire to both Jews and Gentiles, sharing God's good news. Now, this idea of sharing good news is not just in the New Testament. It's also in the Old Testament. Just like last week, we had the same pattern. We talked about, we see in the New Testament, God taking the initiative through sending Jesus. We saw how in the Old Testament, God was taking the initiative. Well, let's look, if you look at this slide, how God in the Old Testament is all about sharing good news. First one, God speaks through Noah as he built the ark. I mentioned last week, it's very possible that the ark was the first tourist attraction in the world. It was humongous. And it took Noah 100 years at least to build the thing. And we're told that Noah not only built it, but he also took time to speak to people. Now, the first part just sets the situation. Helps you understand that the news that, that he gives is good news. 
The situation is this. God has looked at the world and he, all he sees is a mess. People are wicked, evil, and so God has said he's going to destroy the world, but this thing in my backyard, this ark, it's not just for animals, it's also for people. And there's a spot for you if you want to come. That's good news. That you can be rescued from a destruction that's coming. Then, I, d I was going to have a map for this, but I didn't end up putting one in. God put Israel on a land bridge. See, people have been trading, buying, and selling for a long, long time. Even before they had Amazon. Before they had Amazon... And before they had roads and semi-trucks and all that other stuff, they had caravans. And Egypt would pull stuff from southern Africa and bring it up to the east of Israel. There were these large empires like the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire and the Persians. To the north in what's Turkey, there were the Hittites. <clears throat> they were the connection over to Greece and Rome. And people were making stuff and trading stuff. And if you wanted to go north or south, in or out of Africa, you had to go through Israel. And so as all these caravans with all these people from all these different countries and cultures traveled through Israel, what did they find? They found a nation where their God said, you must rest one day every week. You must, on pain of law. You must take a break and rest. In their countries, for the most part, from what we can tell, you work seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. No breaks. Maybe you got one holiday a year. Maybe. And here, as you're traveling through Israel, not only do they get one day off every week, they get three or four holidays where they're commanded again, by law, to take a break and rest and celebrate all that their God has given them. And then you look at their laws. Their laws were structured... And, and resulted as they were, as the laws of the land followed God's word, they provided justice and equity, goodness, fairness for people. God put Israel right there with all these people traveling in and out to be salt and light, to share his good news. And there were people who saw it and said, I want that good news. God spoke through Jonah to Nineveh. Number four, God also spoke through the prophets, his spokesmen in the Old Testament, and, and encouraged them to, to stay faithful to God, encouraged them to turn back to God, told them that God's willing, you know, offering and willing to forgive you and to be reconciled if you'll turn back. And God also spoke through the prophets to other nations, but Jonah had an interesting, different task. Remember, God's a missionary God. God sent Jonah to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And Assyria, as best we know, was the first terrorist nation that terrorized all the peoples around them, including Judea. And Jonah didn't want to go. And so if you know the story, God had to convince him that he needed to go. And, and he does convince him. And so Jonah goes. And we're not told this, but I would imagine that Jonah spoke the bare minimum that he had to. This is what God said. Forty days and your city will be destroyed. And I imagine he had a smile on his face <laughs> when he said it. 
And the king, again, he's this nobody from nowhere, with this message, 40 days, preach, you know, going throughout the city, saying, you're going to be destroyed. The king of the city hears this and puts out the word to the entire city, everybody. Take off your good clothes, put on the sackcloth and the ashes. That was, for that day, a very outward way of showing, I'm repenting. I'm sorry for what I've done. I want to change. And he called the entire city to do that. And as you read the story, and it's, it's amazing to me that Jonah included all this. I think God worked in his heart. Because what you find out is, after the 40 days are over, Jonah has gone right outside the city. He's sitting on a hill, and he's really hoping that God is going to smash the city, just bolt of lightning from heaven, smoke the whole thing, they're all gone. And, he does, and God doesn't do it. And Jonah gets mad. You can almost see him there on the hill, his finger towards, towards the sky, saying, God, didn't I tell you before I said I didn't want to go that this is what you were going to do, and I didn't want you to do this. I don't want you to show mercy to these people. I want you to kill them. Forty days and the city will be destroyed. Brought the result that God wanted. The people turned to God. They saw what they had done was wrong. That was good news in a very backwards way. So this idea of sharing good news is Old Testament and New Testament. But God tells us that his good news is foolishness. It's offensive to many people. You see, if I believe that I am basically a good person, I know I'm not perfect, but if I believe I'm basically a good person, then I'm going to be offended at God's good news. Now, these next three slides are in your bulletin, the points um, that I'm making here. First, as Jesse mentioned, God's good news only looks good to us if we agree with God's view of life, including his view of us. It's only good news if we agree. If we disagree, if we've got our own religion, if we, if we think we're good people, whatever else, then it's not going to be good news. Second, here's God's good news, that God reconciles us to himself by satisfying his justice. And we have to talk about the J word justice because there's rebellion in the picture and it's our rebellion, which means we're guilty, that we deserve punishment. And God's good news is that he reconciles us to himself by satisfying his justice through a substitute. And his substitute is Jesus, his son, God the son. Third, nothing. There's a lot of things in life that are good. There are a lot of things that are important. But nothing is as good and important, reaches the same level in this life or for eternity as being in right relationship with Jesus. Nothing does. Nothing is as good or as important in this life and for eternity as being in right relationship with Jesus who is our Savior and our Lord and our master. Not just the one who rescues us, but the one who now has a claim and an authority to tell us how to live. And he does tell us how he wants us to live. But this good news is not something we only need once. We need it every day. Because just like the Jews in the Old Testament who sometimes listen to God and then would turn away, you and I turn away. And we need to be reminded that, that God's 
rule isn't, you know, you get one chance. You lose it, that's it. No, that's not what he says. He says when he forgives us, it's for good. When he's reconciled us, it's for good. He's adopted us, he's not going to unadopt us. It's permanent, his relationship with us as he pursues us. God also tells us that our relationship with God must be settled while we're here on earth. Now, what we just read in Acts is Jesus giving Saul a commission, sending him to be a witness and to share God's good news. But he's not the only one. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, we read this. And Jesus came to them, his followers, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When he says go and make disciples, disciples are followers of Jesus. And how do we make followers of Jesus? Well, we just share and talk. God's the one who does the heavy lifting in this. We invite people to have a relationship with Jesus. We share the good news. We share also the situation. Here's the reality, the truth, why we need good news because of our own rebellion and selfishness. And then we study the Bible together, God's Word. We learn what God says together. And as we do that with each other, we're making disciples, we're making followers. Because it isn't just introducing people to Jesus. We then have to grow and we have, we're like no matter who we are, even if we've been in church all our lives, we're still a bit like Saul who has to unlearn many things so that we can learn what God says, how he wants us to see life. I'm going to close with an Advent hymn that I came across this week. We're just a couple of weeks after Christmas. This is an Advent hymn by Godfrey Thring, written, I think, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But I want us to, to look at this for just a minute because in it you see two things. You see the good news that Jesus shares and you also see the unlikely part. So look at this, verse 1. Jesus came, the heavens adoring, came with peace from realms on high. Jesus came to win redemption, lowly came on earth to die. Alleluia, alleluia, came in deep humility. Last week we saw that Jesus was a missionary. He came from heaven. He traveled. He came to earth. He became human so that he could speak in a language that we can understand, so that we could follow him and understand what he's doing. He was in heaven. He came to earth. He came also to die, not only to teach, but to die. And he came in humility, and he came to win redemption. Redemption means to buy back. To buy back from spiritual slavery. To buy us out of spiritual darkness. Verse 2. Jesus comes again in mercy when our hearts are worn with care. Jesus comes again in answer to an earnest, heartfelt prayer. Alleluia, alleluia. Comes to save us from despair. Following our own hearts, following our own desires will result in despair and the need for mercy. Mercy is when you and I don't get what we deserve. And Jesus offers us mercy. And then he works in us so that we will pray and call out to him. And he's very glad 
to answer. Verse 3, Jesus comes to hearts rejoicing, bringing news of sins forgiven. Jesus comes with words of gladness, leading souls redeemed to heaven. Alleluia, alleluia, hope to all the world is given. Our hearts can rejoice when we accept God's good news because we know that we are forgiven, not just once, but for eternity, and that just being forgiven and having that slate wiped clean isn't all. That God's plan includes taking us to heaven to be with Him in heaven, face-to-face, unencumbered. No more selfishness. No more flesh, as the Bible calls it. And then verse 4. Jesus comes in joy and sorrow, shares alike our hopes and fears. Jesus comes whatever befalls us, cheers our hearts and dries our tears. Alleluia, alleluia, comforts us in failing years. Jesus does come and give us joy in the middle of our sorrow. In his plan, he doesn't take us out of the mess, out of the brokenness. He leaves us here, and yet he works in us, and he gives us hope and pushes out the fear and the sorrow. He is with us. As one person said, when everything is falling down around you, Jesus is right there with his arm around you, and he's got dust on his shoulder because he's protecting us. And then he cheers our hearts, tells us, I'm with you, and one day this will all be done, and we can look back at it. He gives us his comfort. This is God's good news. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your good news. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for being the God who takes the initiative and comes to us. And then you do with us like you did with Saul. You call us to be your witnesses. You call us to share with others the good news that you've chosen to love us. You've chosen to forgive. You've chosen to reconcile so that we can have this relationship without which we are not complete. Thank you for loving us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish with a song.